What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange, where stocks are slightly lower right now, putting their four-day win streak in jeopardy. Bond yields reversing higher again, and so far still technically no inversion of that two- and ten-year spread. But optimism over the Russia-Ukraine situation has waned. We'll have all the latest. Plenty of optimism for Bitcoin still, up 10% this week to around $47,000, is one big whale behind the big move. And Apple on a roll as well. Like Scott just said, it's up 11 straight sessions. Its longest win streak since 2003. Might be in jeopardy today, but is the uptrend intact? And could we finally close above the $3 trillion mark? We'll see. But first to Dom Chu with our market numbers today. What a winning streak, right? If it were to happen 12 straight days for Apple, we're going to see if the bulls can have anything to say about that, Kelly, right now. But you, you pointed out that this market is to the downside, marginally speaking, maybe looking to snap a four-day win streak for the Dow and the S&P. But it's been a very extremely tight trading range so far today. So when we say losses, we're not talking major at all right now. The Dow Industrial is down 50 whole points, which is down almost two-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500, 46.14 the last trade. They're down 17 handles, roughly one-third of 1%. And the Nasdaq Composite, 14,564, down 55 points, about one-third of 1% as well. So again, a very tight trading range so far today. Not the same story when it comes to certain high-end stocks out there, specifically when it comes to apparel and furnishings. Take a look at Lululemon and RH. Both these companies reported after yesterday's closing bell a tale of two different stock moves, though. Both came out with better-than-expected profits. Both came out with sales that narrowly missed expectations. But it's the forecast in particular that has people a little bit more wary. Raw H comes out and says they're seeing softer demand in their first quarter. Lululemon thinks that their forecast should be upped for the rest of the year, so they're going to pass on certain costs to consumers. Lululemon's up about 12.5% in trading today. Athleisure, high-end. RH high-end furnishings down about 12% as well, so a tale of two divergence play right there. Also watching what's happening with a check on the meme stocks. Both GameStop and AMC Entertainment have more than doubled just since the middle of March, so just in a couple of weeks. But we're seeing a bit of a divergence there as well. GameStop up about 1% in training today after a couple days' worth of kind of pause. And AMC Entertainment down about 6% right now, so we'll see that volatility in meme stocks continues. And Kelly mentioned the 10-year, 2-year spread. I've been tracking the ticker searches that our viewers, listeners, and readers have been doing on CBNZ.com for quite some time now. Not once have I ever seen a top 10 ticker search for the 10-year, two-year spread until yesterday when it was the number four most searched item on CNBC.com. That spread, again, not negative just yet, but getting close. It just tells you, Kelly, just about flat, the difference between two-year and 10-year yields. It doesn't matter what part of the yield curve you talk about. There's a lot more interest in whether or not this could be that indicator of a recession. The question is how far down the line and if it does happen, Kel, back over to you. Not the easiest thing to search for either. So that definitely tells you about the interest. Don, thank you very much. My next guest was early to warn us that markets weren't prepared for a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now it's stagflation he's warning about. High inflation, slowing growth. If he's right, what does it mean for the market? Let's welcome in Ron Koshevsky. He is the chairman and CEO of Stiefel Financial. Ron, it's good to have you back today. Welcome. 
Thank you, Kelly. Let's start with stagflation, which you think is maybe something should be more top of mind for the market here. And maybe, obviously, for the Fed, too. Well, I, you just talked about the 2 to 10 curve being flat. And uh, what, what's all equally interesting is the 3-month to 10-year, which is 180 basis points, Kelly. So when you think about it, the 3 to 10 being flat, yet the, I mean, the 2 to 10 being flat, but the 3-month being steep, that just tells you literally how far the Fed is behind the curve. And uh, so on, on interest rates, uh, you're going to see, I think the Fed's going to raise five to six times, get to 150, 175 basis points. The question will be what happens with inflation. Uh, and, uh, and that's something the market should worry about. No growth and high inflation is, is a risk for this market. You know, one uh, comment that I see a lot, this is why Twitter's very helpful in that regard, every time we have, a, especially a bank CEO, but a lot of people who are now calling for more interest rates, uh, parts of the public go, that's just because the banks want to make more money. They're talking their own book. They are drooling over, you know, the income that may be headed their way. What would you say to that segment of the American public who thinks these calls are self-interested? Well, it's economic. It's it's not. Uh, I, look, I I uh, easily and, and quite readily admit that uh, that we as an institution will do better with uh, short-term rates increasing, and uh, don't want to think that I'm drooling about it. What what uh, has to happen though, and what the public should understand, is that what you don't want to drool over is inflation. And so you might be thinking, well, rates are going up, and I might spend a little bit more on rates. But, Kelly, I mean, if inflation uh, it runs rampant, running 4 5 6%, that's a much greater cost on the general public than short-term rates increasing. Uh, so that's, that's how I'd answer that. And why is it, so when we talk about what could happen with inflation here, and you do think the Fed's behind the curve, why do you think stagflation is... The worry, maybe a rival worry uh, relative to which, you know, stagflation kind of implies economy slowing with stubbornly high inflation, whereas right now we basically have economy growing with stubbornly high inflation. Well, because I think the, the Fed, that, that's, the, that's the balance bar that the Fed is on. Uh, the world is, uh, in the U.S., is coming off sort of a sugar high, if you will, from all the stimulus that occurred, and that's been driving a lot of economic activity, but uh, we're not going to see another $6 trillion of fiscal spending, nor are we going to see the Fed expanding its balance sheet by another $4 trillion. Those two things really drove the market. In fact, it's going to go the other way. And so uh, the economy is slow. It's already slowing in China. It's slowing in Europe. And uh, I think the economy can slow here while inflation remains, uh, you know, elusive to control, at least at this point. And that stagflation is really not something anyone's seen since I got in the business, and I hate to admit it, that was back in the early 80s, Kelly. Uh, so <laughs> you should be, we, we should be thinking about that risk for sure. I personally think the market's going to be trading at around 4,600, give or take a few percentage points, as the market digests all of this. So not a disaster, but not exactly bullish either, um, that stocks continue to churn. Well, yeah, not, not, not bullish. I, I like to, the, the one risk, Kelly, I always like to give you risks that I don't uh, hear people talking about too much. And I'll, I'll give you one that, that uh, can create issues for the, for the U.S. economy that, that we're not talking about yet. 
and that is I personally believe there will be a diplomatic solution in the Ukraine. Uh, the question will be, well, how long will the sanctions continue after there's a diplomatic solution? And it goes to the whole question about whether or not there was a regime change or what's going to go on. But if, if sanctions continue for a longer term, that's, you know, that's a problem. We need free trade, and that's going to be a problem that will slow growth across the world. And I, again, think this is why, uh, in my mind, it's not a red light, but the light's, you know, flashing yellow in terms of, uh, uh, of the markets. Very By the way, it's a stock picker's market. I'll speak my own book here. This, yeah. That's what this is going to be, Kelly. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> but hey, look. Whether it's a slowing of global growth <laughs> or the end of globalization, we're, we're going to have more on that uh, for sure a little bit later on. I want to ask you on a, kind of a brighter note. Listen, if you're going to talk your own book, at least your employees are going to benefit from it. You're giving out a bunch of stock to them. Is that right? Absolutely, Kelly. Thanks for asking about that. Uh, you know, Stiefel's been a very uh, successful company with tremendous growth, not only in the last year, but over the last 25 years. And today we announced that we want all of uh, my partners uh, and associates of Stiefel to be shareholders. So uh, anyone that uh, really didn't have any stock at Stiefel, it's about 4,200 people. We're going to give a $5,000 grant, uh, regardless of position. It's going to be a, a $5,000, and it's to make everyone a shareholder. I think that that's very important, uh, and uh, it actually makes me really feel feel good. I, I felt good about our earnings. I feel really good about being able to do this today. Is it symptomatic of the tight labor market, or does it have nothing to do with that? This has this really has nothing to do with it. Although you know, people say, "Oh, you're doing this for retention." I you will look. You treat people well every day is how you retain them. Uh, so this this is certainly meant to make people feel better. But from my perspective, Kelly, I want everyone at Stiefel to come in thinking like an owner, and when they do that, we will continue to do well. And okay. so it's a good day here at Stiefel. Yeah, it, it certainly is. Uh, I just get that share price turned around. Ron, it's been great to have you here. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kelly. Have a great day. You too. Ron Krzyzewski, the CEO and chairman of Stiefel Financial. Stocks are about to break a four-day win streak as concerns about Ukraine have flared up again. And the almost inverted yield curve not helping. If Ron's right and stagflation becomes a real threat to the market, what do you buy? My next guest has a list of characteristics to look for when picking stocks right now. Joining me is Michael Cagino. He's president and portfolio manager of the permanent portfolio family of funds. Michael, good to see you again. I mean, is stagflation more or less the investment uh, thesis that you're making here as well? Yeah, good afternoon, Kelly. I think your previous guest nailed it. Um, it's it's kind of one of those situations where we're somewhere in the middle. Yes, there's growth, but it's slowing. You've got geopolitical risks. I, I would agree on a diplomatic solution, but I think the devil will be in the details. The, the Ukraine has done a lot to put themselves in a really good negotiating position and appears they may continue to do that. They should be careful what they settle for um, if they truly want independence. Um, but, you know, that will definitely impact global growth, uh, the globalization of economic activity. Those are all negatives. Corporate profits have been they were you know still beating for the most part last quarter, but not as much. The comps are getting harder. Uh, cost of capital is going up with rising interest rates. 
Um, there's a question as to how much that can happen before it turns into a negative. Inflation is high, stagflation's a risk. We can go on and on. And unfortunately, we don't really have answers to a lot of these questions right now. So it, it argues for a diversified, driving down the middle approach to wrap yeah. uh, from an investment standpoint. You may not have answers, but you do have strategies. Say you're looking for companies that can control their cost structure, have pricing power, and reasonable or likely growing dividends. Um, give me some examples, materials, commodities. I see some financial plays in here. Yeah, and we would we would definitely look at those industries as industries that can control their costs and have pricing power. And so that's, again, on the equity side, that's where we're focused on things that will weather, um, you, weather the storm or weather an inflation risk. Um, also, I would say some growth companies, growth at reasonable price type situations, maybe in tech, maybe in some other areas. Um, that would also help. But it goes beyond equities. Um, it, you know, bonds were short duration, high quality balance sheets so that we maintain a lot of flexibility if rates go up and if market rates decouple from what the Fed wants to have happen. And in an inflationary environment, the opportunity cost, obviously, you know, when rates go up, people sell gold and other precious metals. But the reality is that those assets hold value and you want to own them for the same reasons that interest rates are going up. So we would advocate having an, uh, an allocation to that as well. Real estate is another asset that holds value um, in, in an environment like this. So it's a diversified approach that goes well beyond just equities. But those are some areas um, that on the equity side would be names we would be looking at. You Chevron, Ox. Yep, Chevron, no, Ox. Okay. Sorry, absolutely. Freeport, McMoran, I see here as well. Do you expect the market overall to be higher at the end of the year? I really don't know. We don't make predictions. Um, I think there's a lot of risk in a lot of different areas. And while we can say that really at any moment, uh, I, I don't think, you know, five or six years ago, there was a one directional market. You know, you, you bought your cheapest uh, equity ETF and, and rode that, that trend, low cost of capital, benign Fed, uh, benign geopolitical situation, no inflation. That, that has changed, and I think that's going to change for the next several years, if not longer. And investors have to take that into consideration with respect to their, their risk-return profile, um, their expectations, their capital needs, et cetera. And you got to remember, too, with inflation right now, you're, you're holding cash is a negative 8%. We don't know if it's going to stay there, but it's still negative. So you want to be doing something to mitigate that impact on inflation and offset it as much as you can. Yeah. Well put. You know, approach we think would help that. Michael, thank you for joining us today. It's good to see you again. Thanks, Kelly. You as well. Michael Cugino on his strategies for this market. Up next, one big investor making a multi-billion dollar splash in the Bitcoin world. Is that alone why prices are up so much lately? Plus, two years of work from home is beginning to take a toll on the office real estate market. We have new numbers suggesting a permanent change may be here and the names that it could hit. And as we head to break, here's a look at markets. Dow's down almost 100 points. S&P's down half a percent. Same for the Nasdaq. Small caps underperforming as the 10-year yield hits 235. We're back in a moment. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. The price of Bitcoin jumping more than 11% over the past week. It's still holding above 47000 despite a drop today. Wall Street not overly bullish on the crypto these days, according to CNBC's latest Delivering Alpha survey. Almost half of respondents expect Bitcoin to finish the year at or below current levels. Uh, but one Bitcoin whale thinks otherwise, pre-announcing a plan to buy up to $10 billion in Bitcoin to use as reserves for a new stablecoin. It's been lifting the price of Bitcoin and sentiment across the space. Joining me now is Frank Chaparro. He is director of news at The Block. Frank, what do we know about these plans? How significant are they? It's been pretty significant for the market uh, since the beginning of the week. We've seen a wide range of traders try to front run the buying of billions of dollars over the course of the next you know, couple months to serve as the reserve for this stablecoin. And, and it's been interesting to see in the face of geopolitical uncertainty and a narrative of tightening monetary policy, one crypto whale hijacking the driver's seat of what is known to be a very volatile market. Although, is it because he's doing something that is symbolic of what may still be yet to come? Or is this still a sign of, uh, you know, how small, let's call it, uh, Bitcoin is and how much it can be moved by sort of one investor or one set of headlines? I wouldn't say that it's necessarily being moved by one person. What you have is an asset which has been gripped by a broader macro uh, environment or narrative with not a lot of good news. There hasn't been that much good news across markets. And so finally, you have something bullish for traders to cling on to. This, this gentleman, Do Kwan, coming out and warning the market, warning the bears, the goblins that they, they refer to them as, the, the short sellers, that they're coming in. And so traders don't want to get caught flat-footed as someone in the market is buying. So it's not so much him specifically, but the narrative shift of him saying that he's going to do this. And then other traders, the, the bullish ones, kind of finally piling back into the market and the bearish ones kind of sitting on the sidelines because they don't want to get caught shorting or selling as this person is buying. Yeah, and his organization is terrifying. Sorry, Terraform Labs. Uh, UST is his stablecoin. It's pegged to the dollar. It has a market cap of around $16 billion already. So it's decently sizable. But is this project really promising 20% yields? I, I, you know, just it, it, explain a little bit how this works. Yeah, basically, I mean, this is, the, this is what's drawing so many folks to this market. The yield opportunities are extremely juicy. And so... When you think about their position in the space, it's one of the many different stablecoins. And what they're trying to do is have it reserved back by Bitcoin to provide a bit of stability, right? Obviously, different stablecoins have different backing. There's algorithmic stablecoins. There's US dollar-backed stablecoins like USDC and Tether, which have sometimes commercial paper backing or dollar reserves. So this is just another... um, project in this very fast growing space. I mean, the amount of stablecoin out there in terms of supply is well over $100 billion. 
Right. How are they generating 20% though? I don't follow. Yeah, basically the way it works is um, you have a very hungry demand for cash in the Bitcoin ecosystem, right? You know, people are sitting on their crypto and they don't want to sell it. Right. So what they'll do is they'll lend that out. And then that's where the, the yield generation is coming for. They'll pay a very high premium to be able to lend out cash so that they don't have to sell. Sure. And it's sort of a staking project, one of many that we've seen people offer pretty high yields on. It's just that 20 percent is a really high one. And I will leave uh, the Bitcoin community to resolve the leverage that may be inherent to this, much the same way we had to resolve the leverage uh, in kind of the traditional financial system back in the day. Final point on this. um, Where would you say, after we kind of get through this catalyst, the main risks lie around Bitcoin prices to the up and downside as we move into the next couple of months here? Well, what I will say is that the fact that this move has stimulated and re-energized the market is pretty significant. I mean, I remember covering the space in 2017 and everyone had their eyes on Wall Street and Goldman Sachs. And when the big investors say something about crypto these days, no one cares. But this, you know, Forbes 30 under 30 blockchain startup founder is coming out and saying that that he's going to buy through a vehicle, obviously, billions of dollars in Bitcoin, and the whole market kind of galvanizes around him. Not Wall Street, crypto. So I think that's definitely a sentiment shift or a a change in the dynamic. When I think about the risks, right, obviously macro remains a big risk. Bitcoin does not like uncertainty under any circumstances. But right now, this is in the driver's seat because traders are are sitting back if they're bearish. And those that are, are bullish, we're seeing like several $50 million plus notional call buyers in Bitcoin across the curve from April to December maturities Hmm. in anticipation of this spot buying. We got that from Josh Lim at Genesis. So right now this is in the driver's seat. It, absolutely. Uh, it's easy to be in the driver's seat when you can see what's, uh, what's ahead of you. Frank, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks. Frank Chaparro with The Block. If you're looking for more expert insights on everything from Bitcoin to private equity, sign up for the Delivering Alpha newsletter. You can do that easily by pointing your phone camera at the QR code on the screen right now or head over to CNBC.com slash Delivering Alpha newsletter. Still ahead is BlackRock's Larry Fink right about the end of globalization as we know it. We're digging into the data and we'll show you why he may have a point. Plus, a huge slowdown in the number of companies going public. We'll explain why the White House's new tax plan could have that very result. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map, evenly split pretty much between winners and decliners. Walmart, United Health leading the way, while Home Depot is lagging again. We're back in a moment. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're still seeing markets under pressure right now. The Dow down 120 points. We're basically at session lows. The Nasdaq 
down two-thirds of a percent. Defense stocks are rebounding after lagging the past few weeks, again on some concerns uh, reignited over the Russia-Ukraine situation. There's Lockheed up 25% since Jan 1, on pace for its best quarter since 2000. And we've got a number of divergences elsewhere in the markets to check on today. And retail, Dollar Tree and Costco are both hitting new all-time highs. They're up more than 10% this month, while Capri Holdings and PVH are lower, despite PVH posting an earnings beat. And both of those names are down around 20% in March. And the cruise line, similar story. Wells Fargo initiating Royal Caribbean and Norwegian with overweight ratings but is underweight on Carnival. They're citing their more global customer base. Nearly half of its market is outside North America. And in fact, CCL is the only one of these three stocks that's negative year to date. Let's get to Bertha Coombs now for a CNBC News update. Bertha? Hey, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. President Biden and Ukrainian leader Zelensky have wrapped up an hour-long phone conversation. The White House says they spoke about military and humanitarian aid for Ukraine. They also discussed Western sanctions against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Zelensky updated Biden on his country's negotiations with Russia. U.S. intelligence officials say Russian President Putin is being misinformed by his advisors about the performance of Russian forces in Ukraine. They say Putin was unaware that the military was using and losing drafted soldiers, and Putin is not fully aware of how sanctions are crippling the Russian economy. On the news, what if the West has misjudged Putin's true intentions in Ukraine? A look at what his real targets may be tonight at 7 Eastern. And back home in Michigan, prosecutors have rested their case against four men charged with planning to kidnap Governor Whitmer. Today is the 13th day of the trial. Defense lawyers say the kidnap plans were crazy talk fueled by government agents and informants. Kelly, All right. back over to you. Bertha, thank you very much, Bertha Coombs. Still ahead, office rates have had a good start to the year, but we're seeing some cracks in the commercial real estate market that could potentially change that. A look at what's happening and how big of a problem it could become right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. As much as the work-from-home revolution has helped the residential market, it may be hurting the office market. New data shows average occupancy for office buildings in 10 of America's top metros stands at nearly 40%. And while office rates like Boston Properties and SL Green are higher for the year, could hybrid work and cost cutting lead to tougher times ahead? My next guest says all the signals point to yes. For more, let's welcome in Barclays analyst Lee Overby. Lee, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Why do you think the sector has held up relatively well so far? The office sector has long-dated leases, is the short answer. Hmm. Usually a lease will last five years, maybe 10 years, which gives a lot of cushion in terms of how long it takes these things to unfold. Uh, so as if a, if a tenant was deciding to, down, to downsize after COVID, really now would be probably the first time they could start thinking about getting out of some of these leases. And a lot of people would go, you know, in five or 10 years, we're all going to go back to normal and we're going to forget that weird period during the pandemic. Why might that not be the case? Uh, goodness. <laughs> it does feel like there may have been a more permanent shift towards work from home or hybrid. You're completely right. There is a sense that we may just completely revert back. And if we do, then the office sector will certainly be fine. Uh, but technology has come a long ways over the last even two years. And so it makes it quite feasible for companies that want to trim costs that they may really look towards more hybrid working go forward. Yeah, your survey shows that 
global demand for offices could drop 10 to 20 percent in the long run. Um, can you name names? I mean, who is is most vulnerable and, and most resilient to this, do you think? Generally speaking, office tenants are looking for high quality properties. So overall, we like new properties, class A properties and well-located properties. Uh, most at risk are things that have some age on them. Older office buildings, perhaps those that are not as well-located may have more difficulty holding on to tenants. Yes, so uh, we're showing a number of the publicly traded names there. Should we assume that most of the big publicly traded firms have you know, the kinds of uh, investments that can keep their office space new and, you know, or are there even among publicly traded players some differentiation we can identify? By and large, the publicly traded REITs do have very high quality office portfolios. And on top of that, in general, they have sufficient cash to do whatever upgrades are necessary to maintain the quality of their portfolios. We're less concerned about what's held in the public public office REITs than we are more in the, the one-off uh, ownership properties. Right, which could affect people who might have made smaller, you know, people are often looking to real estate as an investment right now. Commercial real estate may show some more vulnerabilities, perhaps. What does it mean for leases? At a very inflationary time, could this actually keep uh, leases trailing inflation and hurt profit margins for some of these major players? Uh, it is quite likely. Uh, there is this thought that commercial real estate is an inflation hedge, but really that only works when supply and de demand dynamics are in balance. For this, it will be very difficult for office owners to push rents given the high levels of vacancy that are out there. And what does that imply for their valuations? Uh, so valuations will depend on both the rents and also cap rates. Neither one of these are particularly moving in the right direction for, for office owners at the, at the current moment. I think best case scenario, office, office prices will be flat. Is it fair to say you're relatively bearish on the group for the time being then? I, it certainly sounds like it, doesn't it? It, it certainly <laughs> does, but I wanted it to be your words and not mine. <laughs> Lee, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you so much. Lee Overbees from Barclays. All right, still ahead, it's the worst performing sector over the past year, despite some surprising big name stocks in it and some surprise bargains. This mystery chart is one of them. Dom Chu has the big reveal next. Welcome back. Here's a puzzle for you. What do Activision, Discovery, and Omnicon all have in common? Dom Chu is here with Sectornomics and our answer. Dom? They are, Kelly, all members of the S&P 500 communications services sector. And with that, that is our featured sector for Sectornomics this month around. So if you take a look at the, the, the overall sector, the reason why we're highlighting it is because over the last 12 months, it is the single worst performing sector during that one span. If you take a look overall at just what we're talking about, take a look at the chart of this particular ETF, the ticker XLC, that tracks that services sector on a, on a year-to-date year basis versus the S&P 500 overall, still underperforming over the last year. It's been even more so of an underperformance overall. If you look at the reasons why, it could be a multitude of ones, whether it's higher interest rates leading to growth concerns, multiple concerns, and everything else. So what about the stocks in the sector and which could represent a decent buy if these stocks have been on sale as much as they have been? We ran a screen taking a look at the S&P 500 sector, the communication services one. We looked at all the components within there to see if there are any of them that have had year-to-date positive performance and then are trading about 10% or below their mean analyst target price. So maybe you can find something on bargain or sale. Take a look at these stocks. Among the ones that fit those criteria, 
are names overall, like you can see, News Corp, which is 30% right now below its average analyst target price. Discovery Communications is down 29% from that target price. T-Mobile is 24% below. Activision Blizzard down 15% from its target price. And Fox over down about 13% or so. So if you take a look overall at the picture for how these particular stocks shape up, it does become an interesting one with regard to where we could find value. I would point this out, Kelly. This services sector, communication services, is the fifth biggest in the S&P 500, and it's probably the most concentrated. Two stocks in particular, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, and Meta Platforms, the parent company of Facebook, make up over 40% of the index, just those two alone, so it's certainly one to watch. I don't know what the overarching factor even is here, Dom, other than maybe advertising, but then this was basically the telecom sector with all of these media platforms thrown in. So it, it is because we took a very small sector from before. We expanded it out to include social media and, of course, traditional media as well. There's a lot of crossover, right? We talk about the consumer discretionary side of things. Does Tesla belong in there or is it a tech company? Is Alphabet more of a tech company or is it more communication services? Uh, all of these kind of, I guess, overlaps lead to a lot of investor questions about whether or not there is any pure play out there. But certainly the sector as we know it today, again, just about 10 percent of the overall S&P 500 is what I would just call traditional and social media. You could probably generalize it in that way. All right, Dom, thank you very much. You we it. appreciate it. Dom Chu. Up next, Apple crossed the $3 trillion uh, level in market cap earlier this year, but only did it intraday. We haven't closed above that level. We're creeping back towards there right now. $2.9 trillion, 178, 183 and change is the level to watch. And one analyst says there's plenty of more room to run. That iPhone demand concerns are overblown, and we'll dig into that next. As we go to break, let's get some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. And shares of Micron are reversing course and now lower despite reporting stronger than expected second quarter results and issuing strong guidance. The CEO was on Squawk on the Street today emphasizing the importance of domestic chip production and he issued a warning. U.S. needs to catch up. We will catch up with chips passing, as well as investment tax credits getting in place over time. These will support the growth of semiconductor manufacturing, which is essential. We all have learned from the environment of COVID how important it is to have resilient domestic supply chain in certain parts of the semiconductor industry. And some of the shortages do still continue, and we see those continuing into 2023. Apple, such a bellwether for the whole market, and it's basically fought back to flat this year. It's down just a third of a percent today. It's been on a major winning streak over the past 12 days, though. In fact, it's longest run since 2003. Apple's climbed nearly 15 percent over the past two weeks. You can roughly take that back to the Fed's uh, latest decision. And that's put it on track once again to hit a $3 trillion market cap. Apple did cross above that level intraday in January, but we haven't closed there yet. The share price needs to hit about 183.83, almost 184, to make that happen. So while recent headlines may have some concern about demand, especially with the iPhones, my next guest says there's plenty of strength for Apple ahead. Let's bring in Wamsi Mohan. He's an analyst at Bank of America Securities. He has a buy rating and a 215 price target on Apple. Wamsi, it's great to see you. Um, why do you think the shares have struggled this year? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Um, I think when you look at the shares this year, uh, primarily you, you saw weakness uh, and a pullback down to the 150 level uh, when uh, the Russia-Ukraine 
conflict started. And I think that that created a lot of anxiety in investors' minds about what is the implication between China, Taiwan. And so uh, the shares really have rallied since then as some of those concerns have eased off. But as we look at uh, what is really driving the underlying performance. It's the stability of the cash flows. It's the ability for them to deliver very strong results. Uh, and despite some of the news flow that you alluded to regarding uh, order cuts of the iPhone, we've actually done work that suggests that uh, the demand remains extremely robust. And the way we come to this conclusion is really looking at what Apple is offering for phones that get traded in. So when Apple sees the demand is strong, they don't need to provide incremental incentives. Uh, and so they pair back on those incentives. That is what we're seeing today. If we go back two, three years ago to 2019, it was the exact opposite. It was a weak demand environment, and Apple was stimulating demand by trying to really increase uh, what they were offering customers for trade-in. So we think this trade-in really is, is a very good indicator of understanding what those demand trends are, which remain extremely robust. So what does it tell you that Apple had to make some supply cuts lately to the iPhone? What, what, what is really going on there? Yeah, it's interesting, Kelly. Like, I think that just like every other company, right, no one wants to be caught short inventory. So there is always an over-ordering of phones into the suppliers. We see this dynamic every time around the September launch where you hear of, you know, 90, 100, 120 million units being placed for the new iPhones. And then eventually by the time December rolls around, you hear about those getting cut down to like 90 or 100. So you, you just get this dynamic where, Apple clearly wants to have enough product available and make sure that the supply chain is prepared for that. Uh, the original numbers we heard in the supply chain were about 20 to 30 million units for, for the iPhone SE. And we're talking about a few million unit cuts. And we model about 17 million units. So we're, we're well south of where uh, eventually these, these you know, order cuts could even take what those production schedules were. So we think that it's really noise. We think that it's about Apple making sure that there is enough supply for the product yeah. and then adjusting based on demand. One second, Wamsi. Just want to show you uh, some COVID news. Actually, President Biden, there he is, getting his second COVID-19 booster shot. Uh, right now, as we're watching, a member of the White House medical unit is administering the vaccine. This one is from Pfizer, uh, and this just on the heels of them authorizing an additional round of booster shots. We've seen some of the older population, nursing homes and otherwise, starting to receive these. It's always, of course, uh, quite a moment when the president gets it, and we'll see what that does for demand for another round of shots, and also as we try to deal with BA2, which has been spreading rapidly around this country. Wamsi, well, let me turn back and ask you then, finally, the SE, it's a lower-priced iPhone. Is it seen as helping or hurting Apple's profitability this year? Oh, uh, Kelly, I think that if you look at sort of last year, right, we, we got to rewind and remember that the supply chain environment was extremely constrained. So what Apple had to do was take some of the components from its lower end units and transfer them to the higher end units. And so you got a very abnormal, very high mix in terms of the highest end phones um, last year. This year, you're going to see more of a normalization. Part of that is just making the phones in, in, in a traditional manner with a traditional split across the high end and, and the, the mid range and the low end of the, the phone spectrum. So what you're going to really see is that the revenues are going to be somewhat balanced between growth in units, because now you have more low end units. But at the same time, uh, the ASPs are going to come down. But 
all all in, Apple's doing a lot of stuff to offset some of the profitability dynamics by vertical integration, like what you've seen in the Macs is going to become more and more what you're going to see in the iPhones as well, which is decoupling from third-party suppliers on chips and then trying to do it themselves. So there's a lot of room for profit improvement on the hardware side, at least to maintain that. And then the services mix obviously helps the aggregate company profitability continue to ramp. And how do you get to a 215 uh, price target? And we should note, of course, that them winning the Oscar is a big moment for trying to build out more of that services business, get more buzz around it. Um, 215, we do have a little bit of an FX headwind right now to contend with. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the dollar strength is going to be uh, a problem across the board. Now, when you put that in terms of Apple's context, right, like you're going to get some FX headwind that's going to limit um, you know, revenue growth. Now, Apple has already guided us uh, to expect some of that headwind. The, the dollar's clearly gotten stronger since then, so there's a little bit more incremental. Not so much on profits, because they do hedge the profitability uh, level, so that the impact on the gross margin is going to be in the basis points, not going to be significant, uh, at least in the current quarter. As you go further out in the out quarters, if you know FX continues to be a headwind, that is going to pressure numbers a little bit. But that said, we have to remember that the compares get increased easier as you go through the course of the year on the iPhone side and the profitability there is significant. So as that mix improves, uh, you can offset a lot of lot of ills from, from the FX side. So net-net, uh, we think that as the company executes on this, it'll continue to outperform on a relative basis. All right. Wamsi, thanks for all your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Wamsi Mohan with Bank of America. Coming up, investing heavies like Larry Fink and Howard Marks are warning about the end of globalization. We'll dig into the data to see if they're right, what it means for the market next. BlackRock's Larry Fink says the Ukraine war has helped put an end to globalization. Are macro headwinds making it too difficult for companies to win overseas these days? Seema Modi is here with more on that. Seema? Hey, Kelly, that's right. Uh, Fink's declaration of the end of globalization sparking a debate across Wall Street as to whether that trend is, in fact, already underway. While S&P 500 companies generate sales in all parts of the world, including Asia, Europe, Latin America, the percent of sales derived overseas has been declining, 27% compared to 28% in the year prior, Strategists say that's due in part to the stronger dollar. A string of new companies complaining about the currency on its earnings call. HP Enterprise said the dollar is stronger and we expect a full one-point headwind, not 50 basis points. Nike, Google recently mentioning the negative impact of the dollar. Strategists say that that, along with volatile oil prices and China's Recent crackdown are just among the factors that could challenge companies and their ability to continue to expand overseas. Now, that's a harder task for technology companies, specifically chip stocks, which generate nearly 60 percent of their sales outside the U.S., not to mention their heavy dependence on Asia for parts and supply chain. According to Goldman Sachs, Facebook and Netflix are among the companies that have high exposure to emerging markets. So, Kelly, the big question is, will we see a complete departure from these markets? Obviously not. Uh, Adam Posen at the Peterson Institute writes that we'll start to see the economy split into blocks. So one oriented around China and the other one around the United States. There's so many different aspects to the fragmentation. There's companies like Facebook, which are mostly demand markets overseas. There's companies like the Chips, which have a lot of those supply bases overseas. And I think they might be an interesting example of trying to bring a lot of that capacity back on shore to the U.S. 
Obviously, there are huge implications here for inflation, for profit margins, for pricing power in the long run. The cost of labor overseas, Kelly, to your point, has gone up substantially as part of this uh, wave of inflation that we've seen hit major markets, not just the U.S. So that plays into that supply chain story as well, for sure. The dollar is an interesting point, Simo, because it doesn't, you know, its strength right now is... You could say maybe a result of this trend, maybe not. Really, maybe a result of the Fed's tightening and its hawkishness lately. So if that were to lessen that pressure a little bit, then maybe that would take some of the sting out of at least the near-term part of this. And it feels like a a really big question that we will get hopefully an answer to when earnings season kicks off is just how much the stronger dollar is impacting the uh, competitiveness of U.S. products overseas. Of course, when you talk about Kimberly, Clark, Procter & Gamble, these major U.S. consumer companies that do on that customer overseas. You know, taking a step back 10 years from now, the most amount of growth that we will see will come from other parts of the world, not the U.S. So these companies are not going to sit back and say, we're not going to go after that consumer. But how they go about doing that is the question, of course. Yeah, and it's one thing for traders, you know, committing capital. It's quite another when you're building out multi-billion dollar businesses uh, for five or 10 years uh, at a clip. Seema, we always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Seema Modi. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for your time. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.